So if for some reason talking about sex makes you incredibly uncomfortable, then please do not listen to this episode. This is your warning. You now have been warned if you continue to listen, you know, things might get interesting and that's your choice um, to participate. And before I go any further, I just want to say that a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about, it's from a book called How to Have Ridiculously Great Sex in a Long-Lasting Relationship. I think the actual title is Love Worth Making, and it's by a psychiatrist, Steven Snyder. He's specifically a sex shrink, so noted. Um, maybe future career goals, we'll see. And I also want to note that he's a Christian, so that might impact the book a little bit, but not really. Um, and before you listen to this episode, if you haven't listened to the attachment episode, I think you should go back and listen now mm. because attachment stuff is going to clearly play into sex stuff. And I feel like if you have a good understanding of attachment, you're coming in with a certain viewpoints that'll make it easier to understand why certain things we talk about might be the way they are. And yeah. I know for what I'm covering, I don't know about you, Allie, but mine is mostly aimed at heterosexual couples um, from all perspectives, sort of. And gay and lesbian couples might have their own issues, but they tend to be different. And a lot of the scientific stuff doesn't, you know. So, so, so what's interesting, no, no, what's super interesting about my stuff is it's, Biology. So it's male and female based on egg and sperm and mostly just numbers of sex cells. And then male and female brain. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, take that at the, at the base level and then you can translate that into, um, you know, different couple dynamics and, and things like that. So I think that that's a good segue into my disclaimer is that I am, uh, for the evolutionary part, the first part I'll be referencing uh, the book of uh, Richard Dawkins called The Selfish Gene, which it's one of those books where you read, like you'll read a paragraph and you'll put it down and you'll be like, wow, uh, that makes sense. Like, wow, I can't, you know, you, you have to kind of read it in little chunks and it, um, it, it really is biological and they don't, they rarely, he rarely, uh, references males and females, um, as humans and uses like a, a wide variety of species as, um, you know, as, as Charles Darwin did. So I do want to say that everything that I'll be saying is going to be referring to, non-human species so let's like kind of suspend our you know our thoughts about ourselves and just kind of learn from the animal world perfect the only uh, the other disclaimer I want to give about what I'm going to talk about is that you know clearly people have differing libidos and for some people they might be more like towards asexual on the spectrum and things that matter a lot to the vast majority of people might not be that important to them. But anyways, Allie, do you want to begin and teach us some evolutionary sex stuff? Yeah, so I'm going to start with evolution, which I I love, and I know I've said this before, maybe either off the mic or on the mic I when I'm trying to understand why something is the way it is in the brain and behavior if you can kind of trace it back to animals or 
cavemen times when you had your primitive basic bare bones survival needs i think that kind of will answer a lot of your questions of why things are the way they are so um this book was recommended to me because I would always love to trace things back to that um, by one of my uh, one of the attendings, one of my mentors when I was in residency, um, and it's called, as I said, the selfish gene. And the overarching theme is that our genes, our DNA, is running the show, and the whole purpose of our being of sex, sexual behavior, mating, survival is the purpose of propagating the genes. And essentially there are way more genes than necessary for building the basic proteins of existence. So this kind of suggests that there's, you know, the the DNA, there's something more to it. And it's kind of tricking us where it's almost – almost like a parasite, you know, we're carrying our DNA um, and our whole survival is, you know, to propagate and pass on our DNA. So what what is the point of sex? So, uh, Anna, in, in your readings, what did was there like a, a definitive answer to the point of sex uh, from a relationship standpoint or is this something you're, you'll get into later? So I think the point of the book that I was reading is like beyond, you know, biology, sort of like what's the higher purpose of sex and like humans have an awareness that maybe other species don't or at least higher functioning humans. So from, you know, evolutionary standpoint, it's very interesting because you have sex and asexual uh, reproduction. So a se- sex involves, in most cases, two, you know, two people, two animals, two organisms. However, there's budding, which you're giving off, you know, you're basically kind of secreting a clone. Um, you're splitting in half, and there's 100% of your genes go to your offspring. Versus sex is mixing your genes, your DNA, with another's at the ratio of 50-50. So first of all, the implications are it takes energy to find a mate and mm-hmm. reproduce, Energy is huge. It's a huge investment in the animal world. And it's only half of your genetics. So, you know, that when you look at the terms of, you know, kind of your DNA is the best, you need to pass it on. This is kind yeah. of, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're only giving half. So, first of all, the way I look at it is you have to be sure that the partner, your mate, has, you know, what you deem as a quality second half. And it has to be worth the energy, uh, the investment of, you know, carrying the offspring for that gestational period. So um, Richard Dawkins quotes uh, Sir W.F. Bodner, who was a German geneticist, um, and the quote is, sex facilitates the accumulation in a single individual of advantageous mutations which arose separately in different individuals. So the way that I interpret this quote is that um, 
sex and the 50-50, the mating and combining, increases the chances that you're going to pass on a gene that is going to benefit the species uh, that would have otherwise been weeded out as, you know, uh, survival of the fittest and, and, and things like, you know, theories like that. So you, sex is worth the investment in this case because you're increasing the chance that you're promoting, you know, the best the best genes, the best means of survival, and mm-hmm. the best chance to pass on your DNA. So, do and you, I think thoughts? I'm yeah. sure this will come up, but like with like for example in humans, for women you're much more limited in how many children you have, and obviously the whole like pregnancy to birth process takes like ten months, and then obviously there's going to be a gap before you could have another child. Right. Um, Meanwhile, a guy could, like, bang multiple people in a day and get them both pregnant. So there's a little more influence of all these factors on, like, getting things right and the whatever sex is going to, like, carry the child. So let's define some terms. And now, again, you know, at the risk of, I don't want to say offending, but just kind of confusing our conversation, um, the different sexes male and female are arbitrary for example frog males don't have penises and fungi mushrooms aren't one specific sex so for the purpose of those who study plants and animals female is referred to as the the group that has the large number of gametes sex cells eggs mm-hmm. and the group with the um smaller but more numerous sex cells aka sperm are male and then fungi oh. are isogametes which means it's just the same the sex cells are the same yeah so and now to kind of to kind of address what you just said this comes into play when you're when you're quite when you're talking about sharing the responsibility of offspring female eggs limit the number of children or offspring a female can have quote-unquote female um, and in terms of evolution, it would benefit the male to have more offspring with numerous females, um, you know, to kind of, you know, it, it, it would benefit them in terms of energy to have as many offspring as possible to increase the chance of, pro- you know, propagating their genes, their DNA. So theoretically, if we're looking at the animal species, it would only require one male to tend to a fe- um, <clears throat> to tend to a harem of say fifty females. So yeah. you could surmise that the female to male ratio would only need to be one to fifty, and any mm-hmm. excess males would threaten the food supply of that population. Mm-hmm. So now if you if you really only need one male to every 50 females, what, you know, what is the purpose if, you know, having a male and a female offspring are equal and the population is equal, what, you know, how do you control this? And again, disclaimer, in the animal world. So Which brings enlighten <laughs> us. <laughs> so it brings us to sexual attraction. So this is interesting. And again, you know, this is probably going to sound like a a rabbit hole that I just kind of dug for myself, (laughs) for those who know the way my mind works. But um, So we're talking about sexual attraction, choosing a mate. And again, I'm referring to non-human species 
Um, and I can't wait to hear, Anna, the correlation that you draw um, between kind of taking this to the level of relationships. So yeah. you've heard, I'm sure, in terms of, you know, ducks, peacocks, uh, males are, they tend to be more attractive, more gaudy, more showy, and the females are kind of the more drab, um, which is very interesting because in society, that's almost the opposite. Yeah. So, so the, as we said earlier, the sperm outnumbers the eggs millions to one, millions. So it's in mm-hmm. the best interest of the male to attract the female with its colorful display and, you know, its, its you know, posturing and its long tail. However, this increases its chances of being spotted by a predator. So now we're bringing in population control. Maybe. And again, these are all theories, but... When you think about it, this answers the question of how you deal with those excess males that are threatening the food supply um, because it only takes one to 50, you know, in terms of female to male ratio. So I just mm-hmm. thought that was very interesting because it takes the idea of attraction and kind of puts like a clause on it. Like, yes, you know, a female can spot you and be more attracted to you, but you're also more attractive to predators. And the species, yeah, and the species that I believe Darwin even um, kind of used as a reference was the uh, birds of paradise, like with the long, long, long tails. So, again, now females would be more fussier in terms of choosing a mate. And why is this? Mm -hmm. There's two reasons. One is to... Avoid mating with a different species, which, Anna, you beautifully touched on before. <laughs> that would be extremely taxing on a female's reproductive system. Imagine, you know, a female horse carrying a mule. First of all, that doesn't benefit the horse species to have a mule. Yeah. So the female is wasting her energy on a species that's technically not even, you know, hers. So I guess... I hope I'm not messing this up. I guess as the donkey and the horse make a mule, like that donkey in some way tricked the female horse to carry his offspring to make the mule, but that does nothing to benefit the horse species. Yeah. So that's sure. that's interesting. So there's a reason mm-hmm. why these females have to be uh, fussy and kind of choose based on, you know, the showmanship of the, mm-hmm. the feathers and the colors. The second reason is to avoid incest, which can lead to non-viable, non-livable embryos. And again, this is an energy, this is a waste of energy and time, which would be better served to propagate their own species. So you're seeing yes. a pattern here, right? Like it's it's all about, you know, species, altruism, genes, um, you know, your grandkids' grandkids and just, you know, looking towards the future. Um, and I think it's, it's beautiful. It's very beautiful that nature is is kind of always looking all the way ahead. And it's very yeah. unselfish in that way. So Even the, though it's obviously not on a conscious level for any of these beings, like, you know, they're unaware. They're just following right? their desire. Right, exactly. So... Um, and, and then, you know, it, it speaks to expectations. And I always think this is so interesting. Female species across the spectrum like to see a sort of display of fidelity, to know that 
the rearing of the offspring will be an equal investment from both parents. So I think there's the the classic example of the penguin bearing the rock to the female and kind of protecting the rock to show that, um, you know, they are willing to protect the egg in, in the future. So I just think it's interesting that, you know, the female species of animals are hardwired and they want to share the investment and they know they want to find a male who's going to, you know, have the best, sorry, sex <laughs> that's going to give them the, the most viable offspring and is also going to stick around. Um, so, you know, then the next thing is choosing the mate. Um, so different species have different traits, as I uh, referred to the uh, bird of paradise. Um, they also, you know, age is really interesting because uh, you would want, um, by mating with an older uh, male or female, you're, you're kind of speaking to the longevity. Oh, well, well, this person made it to this age or this animal made it to this age, so that means that their offspring will make it to reproductive age. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I just, I think that that's also very interesting and there's so much thought, you know, that kind of comes and that's why these visual cues and these visual, uh, hints kind of help guide the female species to make these decisions. Um, and then this opens the door to deception and this is, um, Israeli biologist Amot's, uh, Zahavi's handicap principle, where what if it was more beneficial to not necessarily, quote-unquote, have the big muscles or have the long tails, which, again, costs an investment of energy and also the risk of being spotted. So some animals have found a way to create kind of like a dummy, like, you know, make them look larger than they are or look more attractive or appealing. Mm-hmm. Um However, the way it's like an arms race, over time, the females would eventually be able to detect this deception, but then also say, well, wait a second, maybe they are good parenting material, so there's a, you know, a risk benefit, and you kind of have to weigh the mixture of the deceptive characteristics, but also the quality characteristics. So Mm -hmm. I I think that that's beautiful, and um, I I, I just, I want to hear your thoughts, Um, well, it's just interesting how it is similar to humans in a lot of ways. Similar, but also, I think the glaring difference to me is the, like, the energy and investment that today's, I mean, historically, females kind of, they were the makeup. They were, you know, they dress themselves up. Or we, you know, we do. And it's just our culture. But, and you know, but the reality is that all the studies show that, like, women really pick men more so than men pick women. So women might do all this stuff that's seemingly for men, like put on makeup or whatever to look better. But at the end of the day, I think in our society, too, um, I'm just going to use the term woman and men because that, I'm just talking about humans. But, like, women tend to pick men more than men pick women. Because it usually ends up, the ball still ends up being in the woman's court. And that goes back to the concept of the number of the gametes. And, you know, you got one shot, uh, you know, versus 
millions, you know, essentially. And it, I think that yeah. that's, I mean, it's just, it's so interesting, really. And, and again, I, I do want to just re kind of circle back to this disclaimer that, you know, I, I'm only, I'm speaking about species in general and the arbitrary terms and, um, you know, just this is clearly just based on biology, but I think that, you know, the people who study this and both plants and animals have to have these terms defined in a certain way. And sometimes that doesn't always translate to us, but um, there's a lot of things <laughs> that don't translate when you look at the animal kingdom and the flora and the fauna versus kind of the way we do things yeah and it might not be as obvious like you know you're talking about the males and these species like having beautiful feathers or something to attract the females but there's still a certain expectation in our society of like expectations of males if you're gonna like you know be able to get it I guess I'm switching between males and females and men and women but if you're a man there's expectations of what you need to do to attract a woman, at least if you want, like, a decent one, right? Like, probably if you are unemployed, you know, you might have a struggle there. So there's – it's just different, but there are still mm-hmm. expectations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what what about the fact that um, in humans specifically, for the most part, uh, if a female is pregnant – it yields one child. There's obviously like twins or triplets or whatever, which right. I would assume thousands of years ago that may have resulted in all of them or the mother dying because they wouldn't have necessarily had the means to, uh, you know, give birth to three babies safely or whatever. But like an iguana or even like a cat is going to have mm-hmm. a litter or a group a of litter. babies. Sp- right. Spiders can have like a thousand babies at once. And That's it, terrifying. I would assume, yeah. <laughs> I would assume that, like, that must play into it to at least some degree, right? Like, like Anna was saying, a woman can only have so many babies in her life when it takes nine months to yield uh, offspring. Um, and there's only a certain window within a woman's, you know, lifespan that they can safely give birth. Right. So... In that case, and again, this is my very, we have a master's in biology, it's my amateur opinion that you have to compare species with similar gestational ages and um, I guess gestational numbers. So you would have to compare, um, I don't know, like maybe, does a kangaroo, I'm sorry, a kangaroo, do they only have like one little joey in their pouch? Like you, yeah, you would, I think you're right. You're right. You would have yeah. to compare animals that meet for life versus animals that have very large and in some cases terrifying litters. Thank you, Jonah, for the visual of the spider where you step on and all the spiders come out. <laughs> oh, um, I think you have to look at those on an individual level and see what the similarities are in terms of mating rituals and, and choosing choosing a partner but that that's that's that speaks to I mean let, all right so let's take humans and the nine month gestation and the really only the singleton pregnancies the the one um how like I know you can't compare because we're a civilized you know we're a society but you know 
dating and the courtship and the, you know, ritualistic kind of wooing can take years before there's, you know, an engagement and then a wedding and then a baby. And if you just look at it on that scale, well, yeah, you you have one shot in some cases. So you, you really have to know, you know, for lack of a better phrase, what you're getting into. Um so well and also like if you think about how this has changed over the years for humans back in the day you'd get married off if you were a girl when you were like 13 and you'd pap out babies until you died or you know you hit menopause so and the reality is like a lot of your kids would die because just like you know diseases and stuff but now it's definitely like and there is a divide like people who are wealthier and more educated they're like eh. you know a lot of them it's like okay if I even I'm gonna have kids I'm gonna wait until I'm well into my 30s and like you know I'm in a good place and I can give my kids the best life ever um and also there's so much to assist with fertility these days that people Mm -hmm. feel like they have a longer span whereas like Presently, people are, you know, from lower socioeconomic backgrounds or whatever, they tend to still just sort of um, have a lot of kids and see what happens. And then there really is that divide. And some of it, I think in America specifically, it's socioeconomic, but in other countries, there might be different things that play into it. And obviously, there's some cultural expectations to some people come from like, you know, certain backgrounds, whether religious or, you know, they're from certain countries that that's the belief there that you should like have a lot of kids. Absolutely. Yeah. Religion is, is another layer to this that other species don't have to deal with. So that that's very interesting. Yeah. Like I grew up super Christian background. So they were like, my friends were like one of like 11 kids that I'm one of five, so there you go. <laughs> so let's. Uh, this is a good segue into, you know, more of the. I don't know. It's a good segue. Let's talk about the brain because somehow I can't not not talk about it. Um, so, sex and the human brain. So now I'm going to be talking about humans, but again, you know, there are a lot of. Uh, you know, conserved structures and pathways in species, um, you know, across the animal kingdom. So uh, for the most part, male, males and females, men and women, uh, have largely the same neuronal, mechani- neuronal mechanism for desire, arousal, and orgasm. However, their responses are different due in part to hormones, obviously cultural, environmental cues, um, so, you know, you have your phases, you have excitement, arousal, uh, plateau, uh, orgasm, and then you have the words like tumescence and, and such. So excitement is the preparation for sex from erotic physical or mental stimulation, and it involves an increase in heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, and like a flushing of the face and neck from uh, vasoconstriction of the skin. And I want to go ahead and just, uh, you know, let you know that I got this information from uh, an article that I thought that was really interesting. It's 2019, fairly new, Neuroanatomy and Function of 
human sexual behavior, a neglected or unknown issue uh, that was published in Brain and Behavior by uh, Rocco S. Calabro and Alberto Casciola et al. So I thought this was a very good review um, of <clears throat> kind of sex and the brain. So the problem that I will tell you, though, from my academic standpoint is that you have the brain in the spinal cord and it's kind of it gets very kind of gets very cloudy, like what is, you know, causing what? And I'll get into that in just just a second. So you have excitement as like the preparation and then you have arousal and this is kind of the physical manifestation of the excitement. So in men, erection is a reflex from sensory signals, including tactile, visual and olfactory inputs. Um, but also, as we know, um, you know, you can have erections while you sleep. So it, it's a reflex. Um, and that kind of while you're sleeping, while you're dreaming kind of uh, speaks to the, uh, you know, the brain activity and, and kind of the sensory that you're kind of creating in your own brain. I think that's really interesting. And in women, it's those same sensory inputs, but then again, leading to lubrication that's uh, purposes to make intercourse more comfortable. So there's this a theory or mechanism called the sexual pleasure cycle, and this was proposed uh, in a paper by uh, Giordatis, uh, Krinkelbach, and Faust, and it basically describes the process of sex as goal-directed behavior and kind of like a flow of sexual information in the brain. And that's a good way to look at because you have a limbic system, right? Uh, so you have kind of all these interconnected structures that feed back. Am I hungry? Do I want sex? Am I upset? Um, you know, it, does this smell remind me of something? And, and it's all related. Um, and it's my favorite part of the brain. I really, I really enjoy studying it. So I have a favorite part of the brain in case you were wondering That's how good. Big, big of a nerd I was. I want to <laughs> just kind of let you know so so it, it's thought of as goal-directed behavior and it's you can look at it like that when you look at it in terms of evolution like there's a means to an end and uh there's you know drive and pleasure are mediated by uh, dopaminergic neurons of the reward system so i'll go into all the structures just briefly but i wanted to I saw a phrase and I was like, yes, we've definitely talked about this before. Um, if you remember, we talked about salience networks and basically yes. kind of focusing on what's important and kind of blocking out all of the static and background noise. So sexual salience is, to me, it's what you assign, you assign, and I don't want to, uh -huh, I don't want to use the word fetishes, but... Something that you are attracted to, to me, is your sexual salience. And if that's present, you kind of, everything else kind of just fades into the background. But also... So what you're talking about is something that we're going to have on a bunch when we go to my section. And that's, you're essentially, you're not even, you're not talking about fetishes. You're talking about arousal. So if someone is actually aroused, they're totally like zoned in on what's going on and everything else is just going to, you know, fade to the background. Right. But, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but I do wonder if there is a 
pathologic sexual salience where I don't even know. That's a whole let's just put that away. We'll talk about it at some other point. But if if you Wait, but now I'm curious. <laughs> if you Oh god, I Lord. If you are if you have a sexual fetish that is not common in it's not commonly accepted in the culture for lack of a better phrase that may lead to problems like that may get you in trouble so to speak um yeah well if you need it to be aroused yes you need it to be aroused and it's not something that society also you know has accepted as sexy so I just almost wonder if you can't put that away, you know, and you act on it, God forbid, like I, I wonder um, what I, I just, I want to learn more about sexual salience. So I'm going to give myself a little post-it note there. But I wanted to say that past experiences based on how they're kind of embedded in our memory system also promote uh, a sexually motivated state. So I think the past experiences is a really uh, interesting component because it mm-hmm. kind of lays a foundation it lays a pattern like this gets me aroused and when I remember this experience you know it leads to this sensation so um, yeah. I thought that's very interesting so the limbic system uh, just to kind of just name just shout out all the structures <laughs> you have the <laughs> hypothalamus and that kind of regulates uh, you know body temperature and and some of the autonomic functions the amygdala fear aggression the hippocampus is like memory and and kind of storage and retrieval and a lot of other nuclei that work with uh, the brainstem Uh, to coordinate these increases in heart rate and you know those are all unconscious however the sexual cycle does require conscious awareness and this kind of speaks to the fact that um like an erection and uh even ejaculation it kind of is all spinally mediated and the spinal cord is not a conscious thing so um you kind of need this very complex i would even say kind of like a like a fail-safe mechanism. So let me just briefly go through the structures and then um, I will be done with my, with my, <laughs> with my rabbit hole here. <laughs> so um, the reward system area of your brain is also kind of implicated in addiction and it triggers your sexual motivation and, you know, your choice of mate. However, it's up to your prefrontal cortex that's kind of supposed to be like the parent or the babysitter kind of modulating everything that blunts that and says, no, this is not appropriate. Um, you know, this is, you know, okay, this is not okay. And it kind of, we're in public, this, you know, you can't be doing that. Like it kind of puts the, <laughs> you know, it's the lid on it. Kind of just like, you know, we have to stop this. It's not, not cool. So it's like your checkpoint. Um, the thalamus, which is the part of your brain that kind of just relays like, oh, I touched the stove. This is hot. Let me pull it away. Well, that's more the spinal cord. But uh, the mm-hmm. thalamus feels your pain. And when you have sensory input, it kind of, uh, you know, relays that to which, um, you know, processing cortex. Is it, was that something I saw? Where do I turn my head when I hear something? So the thalamus relays uh, erotic stimuli from 
incoming from the spinal cord and then processes that. Uh, and I think I've touched on everything else. Um, but basically this is all interworking and you could see how, you know, sexual relationships can be complicated and, you know, people's past can kind of just kind of always be there. And, um, I just think it's, it's, it's really interesting. So, you know, to summarize this, uh, the brain provides the erotic mental imagery and voluntary behavior or non-behavior uh, inhibitory control, but the spinal cord mediates, um, you know, kind of everything else that goes on in the genital region. So um, that's, that's, you know, that's all I have to say. <laughs> so we're good with the brain. Are we ready for... What's let's, next? Let's, uh, yeah, let's move on to the next, the next stage. <laughs> okay. Well, I think actually a lot of what you said, it provides a basis for a lot of things we'll touch on that are less scientific and more psychological. So I'm going to start by reading a fun quote from this book. Okay. I discovered many years ago, if you ask the happiest couples what keeps them together, very often the answer is, we like the way each other smells. It's no accident that single people talk about finding someone with the right chemistry. I worry a bit when a woman tells me she does not want to get close to her new boyfriend until he's had a shower. I look forward to the day when she finds someone and can't wait to bury her face in his sweat-soaked t-shirt. Allie, what are your thoughts on this? The olfactory system is located both proxim like in proximity <laughs> and in neural connections to memory storage and the limbic system, which it generates uh, you know, these emotions, these sexual drives, and also uh I'll just say pheromones. I, I don't know enough about it, but I know smell and pheromones. So that those are my thoughts. Okay. And how do you feel about how your boyfriend smells? Uh, I, I love it. I, <laughs> I what, will. what if he's really sweaty? What do you feel about that? Oh, he's like, he, he showers a lot. So I, I, you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter, but like, to me, it's like, um, you know, you just bury your nose in someone, you just like, you know, he'll be like, oh, you're breathing on me. Like, stop. I can feel your nose air, you know, but no, I, I. I agree with that, and I, he showers without me asking. This is so bad. He's sitting right over there. Hi, hi, Joel. <laughs> well, okay. He doesn't. He doesn't hear your quite. Like he can't hear okay. you. He can only hear what I'm saying. So I'm gonna have to go back and just let him know. Okay. So uh, my so when I read this, I got really excited because I told Jonah early on when I met him that I like how he smelled even when he was sweaty. Like I was into it and I've never been into that before. So reading this was really validating for me. Of course, he like made fun of me when I told him that. Yeah, because I stink. Okay, well, that's your own personal <laughs> opinion. But let me break this down on a biological level. So I had already read some stuff about this, but when I came across this in the book, I, like, looked into it again. And the first thing I'd read, like, a really long time ago was when you're on birth control, um, it changes, like, what you're attracted to on a scent level. And when you're not on it, you're attracted to something else. So... 
if you're on birth control, your body thinks you're pregnant. It's looking for um, like a familial presence to like be there for the baby. So if you're on birth control, you'll be attracted to someone who has a similar immune system to you. And that actually is not good for like uh, getting pregnant, uh, having a healthy pregnancy and caring like a determined giving birth to a really healthy baby. What actually is important is being attracted to someone with an opposite immune system of yours. It means you're more likely to get pregnant, not have a miscarriage, have a really healthy baby. So this is, I mean, I thought it was really interesting. And yeah. And I'm not on birth control, so no one needs to worry about that. <laughs> I have never heard that before. That's super interesting. Yeah, you can look it up and it goes into like, it breaks it down on a really biological level, but it's a proven thing and it, I thought it was really cool. And it do you, validated me, which of course I love. Do you know which birth control? Estrogen, progesterone, high, low doses. Do you know any like any details? I don't know that detailed, but I just know that it said that you... I would assume, obviously, the more, like, intense hormonal birth control you're on with, like, higher levels of hormones would impact this. But obviously, like, it, the only way, like, this is really gonna, like, so, if you're on birth control, am I saying you should go off of birth control? No, I am not saying you should go <laughs> off of birth control. Okay, like... I have some qualms with birth control, but this is not, like, a reason enough that you should go off. Um, but, you know, it's interesting how these things in, impact people, and it's just, like, right. I don't know. I love this stuff so much. Like, I'd read this long before the book because I'm always looking up, like, weird facts like this. <laughs> so, that being said... Um, Really, you can know everything about sex, and in 2020, there's a lot to know, but the whole purpose of this book is that that's going to get you nowhere if you don't understand sexual feelings. So a little earlier, you were asking me, like, oh, what's sex defined as in your book? And specifically, he has this line where he calls it, like, the highest realm is where sexuality connects us to each other and to the deepest parts of ourselves. Um, and then he said, you know, there's no algorithm to really make this happen and it can be truly special either of its own volition or not at all. And then his helpful note was, but we can help nurture the conditions for it to flourish once we know what these conditions are. Mm -hmm. So you were talking earlier about arousal and there are some psychological changes that occur when you're aroused. First off, you've decreased attention, so you can't pay as much attention to, like, things that are stressing you out, which is a, a good thing. And the more aroused you are, the more, like, stupid you get. That explains a lot if you think about it. You also regress a little bit to, like, a more childlike state where you're more selfish, lower frustration tolerance. You want the other person's complete undivided attention, and you want to feel like you're great. Um, and if you are, you know, aroused and you're having good sex, you'll probably feel validated. You'll feel good about yourself. Um, and you feel more like in touch with your deeper, more authentic self. So he then described real arousal as 
captivating, absorptive, and goofy. So I goopy. Stinks. I know. Oh, oh I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So one thing I that stood out to me was he was talking about like a lot of the stuff in the book. To me, it stood out like I thought about like how a lot of things are right sexually with teenagers. Like clearly, the lack of experience can impact things negatively but like as far as like arousal like teenagers have no issue getting aroused unless they have serious issues but like most teenagers like they want to have sex like it's something they're actively resisting if they're not doing it or maybe you know they can't attract someone but that's a separate issue but most people who are like 18 are not really going to have arousal issues right right and one of the things he pointed out that's sort of something that's different for teenagers versus like adults because a lot of what this book discusses is like great sex but then like bad sex and like what are the components that are going into great sex and what are the components that are going to bad sex and a lot of it is about relationships because most people do end up in long-term relationships so one thing he mentioned was simmering and this is something, and I'm going to explain it for you, but it's something teenagers do a lot. It's like, for example, teenagers, you, you're you dating someone in high school and you like find your little hidden area between classes and you like make out and like pat each other real quick and you're like turned on and then you have to end it and you have to go to class, right? But a lot of adults in relationships don't don't do these things. So they'll only touch someone at all if they think that it's going to result in sex and so if people are missing out on this like they're missing out on it can lead to like not being aroused and then like tons of issues can catapult so one of the things he says to a lot of his patients he sees because he's a sex psychiatrist he'll tell them to make sure they're simmering so they should be like touching their partner and it doesn't always need to lead to sex and that can be more of the appeal too right and it's It's not the same thing as cuddling because cuddling can be very platonic yeah but is simmering uh for lack of a lack of better term is simmering foreplay no not exactly because i mean it could be but like essentially it's things that you can do while you're fully clothed so like like you can touch someone over their clothes and it can mm-hmm. be like it's like and it's not like grabbing someone it's more like groping another person would be a good way to describe it is it heavy petting yeah but like something that you could sort of get away with in public i would that's how i would frame it gotcha so okay. anyways so, the whole gotcha. idea is like you know, if you're married to someone and you both have to go to work in the morning and you don't have time to, like, have sex, you don't have to, like, ignore each other completely. You can, like, grope the other person. I'm picturing, like, the beginning of, like, some type, some movie, like, about, you know, having kids and living in suburbia. Like, I'm picturing the opening scenes of a movie where the husband and wife are (laughs) scrambling to get to work. They're, like, you know, making breakfast around each other, and then they have, like, a moment on the porch before the husband or wife goes to work. (laughs) And then, so I couldn't help when I was, like, reading this. I was thinking about, like, 
people, a lot of people are in like long-term relationships and they'll be like, oh, we've never sent each other nudes. And I feel like nudes should count as a form of simmering too. He doesn't mention his book, but then again, this book was written by a guy like 30 years older than me. So maybe he doesn't know about the whole. And it's up for interpretation. I think that that's great that you're expanding on like what it means in today's society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think sexting is the modern version of that. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So essentially, I guess my point is, and like at the point the book is trying to make is that, you know, just because you're in a long term relationship and you're like living with someone you've been with them for like God knows how long doesn't mean you should stop doing all these things because it it is probably going to negatively impact your sex life. Like, yeah, you know. Okay, so. The book opened with something that I loved. I was just like, this is so great. Um, Essentially, he opened with this like line, like your wife is not a lawnmower or something. But the whole point of it was that uh, women don't have like a button to turn them on. And a lot of men have this misconception that like you just have to get a girl wet and then you're like good to go. And so he breaks down that arousal. If someone's truly aroused, they will always get wet. But like just because someone's wet doesn't mean they're aroused. And I was like, oh, thank God. Can I send this to every single person I've had sex with in the past? Because they need to read this book. Because I just said it before. It's finally mediated. It's a it's a reaction that doesn't involve a higher level of consciousness. It is the spinal cord responding The spinal cord is kind of like the horny, you know, teen. Yeah. And the brain is kind of like the, you know, more prudent, more, you know, intellectual. Like, let's think about this. Do we like the person? Blah, blah, blah. But the spinal cord is like, oh, this felt good. Let's do this. Like, let's just, you know, not ask permission from the brain. So, yeah, you're absolutely like it's it's founded in science, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So note to people who are listening, you know, someone's not going to get aroused simply because you ruthlessly fingered them, okay? (laughs) And the idea (laughs) is that... Ruthlessly. It's a thing. It's a real issue out there. This is like a PSA. Growling? Are there, is there growling involved? Yeah, there might be. You know, there's a lot of interesting people out there who get interesting ideas, and I don't know where they've learned this conception of what sex should be, but it's wrong. Okay? So, you know, going further with this, like, yes, if someone's wet, you can have sex now, but it's not necessarily good sex, and it's definitely not good sex if the person isn't aroused. So really the idea should be both people should be focused on enjoying themselves and not it doesn't need to even be an end goal of sex. Like if you're aroused, that will happen, right? So, you know, I thought I thought that was great. I was like, oh, it, So actually, I only read this book because Alyssa gave it to me and she had like ordered like a stack of 10 books and she was like, this looks like it'd be a good book for your podcast. So that was like the first section I read. I was like, yes, the world needs to know this. So I'm going to do a whole episode on it. That's how I felt about the book I read. I was like, I, oh, this is so, I, I told everybody about like the first chapter. I was like, you know, 
you read a that that's like the marking of a good book when you just want to tell everybody you know about what you learned yeah yeah I thought it was really cool I didn't like exactly learn anything but it was just validating everything I already knew so I was like this is great that's more what I look for honestly these days just to be validated (laughs) so I what I thought was really great and this was like the most explicit part of the book is he said you know like so just because the guy's hard and the girl's wet doesn't necessarily mean that you should go straight to having sex. More people need to wait until they can't resist it anymore because it that sets the bar for it to be like a higher, better sexual experience. Um, and so he, 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 the most explicit part in the entire book is he was like, um, one way to do this is if a guy sort of like, I don't even, I, it's so hard for me to use scientific terms. Okay, but if a guy takes, like, the head of his penis and just, like, rubs it against the girl's, like, vulva or, like, outside vaginal area before, like, just going in, that usually that can lead to, like, heightened arousal for both people and make it a lot more, like, a better experience. So I was like, is that the I've never same seen that right like, now before. Is that the same as tantric sex? No, like kind that's of different. Teasing? Oh, okay. <laughs> sorry like tantric sex is like a higher (laughs) level this is all stuff that like you know i would say people who have good sex do but like there are a lot of people who don't know or think about these things and i would blame that mostly on men being stupid but you know girls pay play a role too um but yeah no he mentions tantric sex at one point and he's like Mm -hmm. if people always want to have like the highest level of like sexual intensity then they can go to like a tantric sex class and then I told Jonah that we do that after the pandemic and he didn't really say anything but it's happened (laughs) (laughs) I'll report back once I find out what it is I really honestly don't know I think you like I don't know why you sit around and eat sandwiches and then hope something happens. No, I, I think no, it's like I, you're, you you meditate it. and like heavy breathe while like staring into each other's eyes or something. You're both wearing linen pants, and there's like a yoga a yoga yoga guru like sitting there, and and it's it like why does he need to be there? Um, like I could just picture it when you could just get like a book uh, on it. I can, I can exactly picture it. It's hundred fifty dollars an hour. <laughs> And you want nothing. Okay. (laughs) So I'll report back once I really know, but it does sound pretty good based off the way you're (laughs) describing it. So yeah, the idea about everything that he's saying is just like, you know, like don't just make sex happen. Just like if you're with someone things are good, just like exist with them. And then like things should happen and they should be good. And then like, don't, don't force things. Um, and then he, one of the things, reasons, one of the things he pointed out was sort of like for heterosexual couples, there's a lot of pressure on like penetrative sex being the end all be all. And this is like a pressure that maybe like uh, gay or lesbian couples don't feel uh, as much pressure about. Um, so he was saying like, you know, there's issues where some people might not be able to have orgasms from, like, penetrative sex, or some some people might come significantly quicker than others, and then there might be people who don't necessarily fit together, you know? So, like, 
there's a lot of components. um, And he was just sort of saying like, you know, if you're different, be kind to yourself. And I would add be kind to your partner but like you know that's your own choice and like if you're just not into what what someone else is into I say dump them and move on but that's my own my own I think that goes back to what you were saying before um like you know it it sounds cliche but you know they say quote unquote you know you have to learn to love yourself before you love someone else but if you kind of Uh, apply that to sex you kind of have to know what you like you have to I I don't know like it's kind of you have to know how to convey that to somebody so that you know you have to discover yourself before you can expect and this goes back to plasticity and how the brain will remember okay this is the pattern this is our routine this is what we need to achieve orgasm And a lot of sex therapists may say, oh, well, you know, you don't want too much of a routine because it doesn't leave any room for, you know, variability. But, you know, I I think it's a start. And I I do think you you should probably have some sort of like a routine or position or, you know, a method. Yeah, for sure. Um, One of the things that he did touch on in the book when I was reading it was that like some people have this idea that like, you know, sex toys or like doing some crazy shit is gonna save their sexual relationship but if you don't have like a good foundation then nothing's gonna fix it it can make things more exciting if you already have something good but that's about it and so going back to the prior discussion you know I think when I was specifically introduced to arousal I said like it's a childlike state in some ways and one of the other things is like your sexual self is very honest and but he was like its vocabulary is limited essentially to yes or no and that's based on Hmm. like are you getting what are you getting an erection and like something's off if that's not happening whether it has to do with the other person or you or something else um but something's off so you know, what I really liked about this book is it went through like a lot of common issues people have. So like one situation described is a woman is upset because she can't have an orgasm with her partner. So then her boyfriend becomes upset because she's not having an orgasm with him. Then she gets upset over not being able to make him happy. So... This is like, you know, a whole domino effect of negative Yeah, I love how her orgasm would make him happy. (laughs) Yes. So there's a lot of issues in both people's perspectives here. So when she went to see this sex psychiatrist, she told him she had no issue like orgasming on her own. So let's say, and I I honestly think this is a pretty common scenario. I've had like, I, I know that this just plays out a bunch with people. So what should someone in this situation do? Let's say you're the girl. Well, first, you should tell your partner to stop trying to make you orgasm. And then you should just worry about actually having fun. So the idea is that, number one, hopefully she would end up having enough fun. And the lack of like lack of pressure that she's been having that might have been impacting her ability to have orgasm Mm -hmm. that maybe eventually she could at least become comfortable enough to like masturbate around him or something like that and then she could show him what turns her on right that's what I was thinking 
Yeah. So, like, baby steps, right? And then, like, the reality is, like, each individual is responsible for their own turn-ons. Like, ideally, you're with someone where, like, the same or similar things turn you on. And, like, clearly, if there's, like, a crazy difference, um, you know, that's probably not compatible. But then there's just little things about people's bodies that are different and, like, you know clearly no one can like know that right off the bat right or or people's experiences could be you know for better for worse you know expectations and experiences could be could be linked yeah and so another thing that like sort of we've touched on but what he said is the couples that have the best sex are the ones who don't set orgasm as a goal they just enjoy it if and when it comes and I was like that's a good point yeah. Um, and so, and this is like, it's sort of like this book was random. So how I'm saying things is random, but hopefully it makes sense. So one thing that I also like that I read was he was saying whether an orgasm turns out to be really worthwhile depends on the intensity of the arousal that preceded it. Great arousal leads naturally to great orgasms. Most of us are perfectly capable of having orgasms without much arousal at all. So the idea was that, like, you, the reason why, like, arousal matters and all this matters is, like, you probably don't want, like, what he calls a low road orgasm. So it's just, like, a (laughs) shitty orgasm. (laughs) And so the high road orgasm or like better orgasms obviously there has to be a lot more arousal and a lot more buildup and that's like if you are get if you do want one that's the type you want like you your goal should be none at all or like high road orgasm so that's the whole basis of all this why why the road metric like why high and low road because that like so then i think like take the high road take the low road like is that sacrificing your like what what does that mean so he used it he was talking about like some he used some like dessert analogy but i thought it was like silly so i took it all out but um i did like that he was differentiating that they're like shitty orgasms you know they're still (laughs) orgasms and then like really good ones and (laughs) Uh, you know, no people's such thing as a bad <laughs> orgasm. <laughs> like it wasn't really worthwhile. Um, so you know, right. I th- I thought that was cool, and I like that because I haven't really read someone pointing out or like remarking on that before. But it was something that I've thought about. You know, I don't even know if I've named it anything in my head, but it's something right. I definitely thought about. Yeah, I think we've named like top ten and not top ten. <laughs> And then, I don't know so, though. Like, <laughs> and then right after this, he went down to saying that, like, you know, this is not going to be possible for a woman if she has no experience masturbating. I think the reason he's saying this about women instead of men is because if a guy doesn't masturbate, there's probably something wrong with him. Whereas, like, some women might be so repressed that they just don't. And that that's not necessarily a good thing. So they can't. That person can't go into sex and expect sex to be good when they don't even know how to masturbate. But if, but if that person's really repressed to the point where they don't masturbate, no matter their gender, um, wouldn't sex carry a lot of anxiety? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, for sure. And that anxiety would probably make it difficult to be successful. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's a kind exactly. of like a, a cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So can yeah. what, and this is probably more of an open-ended question, but what about society? And, I, and I'm thinking about movies where, you know, you talk about having teenage boys and they just like, you know, masturbate everywhere. They ruin the towels. Like, why <laughs> is that? You know, why isn't the same thing said about females? And and why? I just it's I don't think there's an maybe there is an answer. But, you know, did he touch on that? Like maybe why females like may not have known that this was an option or, or anything like that? No, I mean, not specifically. He just mentions, like, culturally a lot of, like, gender norms still impact people and stuff. But, I mean, just think about it. Like, when I was a teenager, I think, uh, I think, you know, I had, like, girls would potentially talk about it amongst each other. But, it, like, mm-hmm. it mostly was, like, still somewhat taboo and like you might have like your friend that you talked about it with but then you would have a lot of other friends that would be like oh I don't do that so you know I would hope it's different now you know it's been like what over 10 years since I was in my teens so I mean yeah. from my pers- from my perspective this is like all just living in a misogynistic culture that tries to repress women's sexuality and that's true yeah I just I, I agree it's just it's funny because it's like almost like a cultural, you know, it's like an expectation, like, oh, you got boys, you know, they're going to be in the bathroom all day. And like, and I'm, I'm quoting like movies and, and, you know, culture. I'm not making a generalization, but it, it's, it's almost like sets women up for, but, you know, girls don't do that, you know. It's just very well, interesting. You know, too, like, <laughs> I grew up in, like, a super, super Christian background, right? So being a girl and being sexual is, like, not supposed to be a thing. So I think I was probably very, like, on some level ashamed of being, like, a sexual being until, like, my mid-20s. Mm. So, it, it, like, even if you consciously push away from all that stuff on a deeper less conscious level that you have less control over it'll still impact you and like you know right yeah that's so interesting yeah so on a different topic um one if we're going back to some biology facts so everyone knows that women's orgasms are from the clitoris right but the clitoris is external and internal so oftentimes women will talk about like you know having clitoral orgasms versus vaginal orgasms versus like whatever other types of orgasms there are but Mm. vaginal are still from the clitoris they're just from it being stimulated on the inside Mm -hmm. so i thought that that was a like little known fact so i wanted to put it out there so the is the g-spot then just an extension of the clitoris yes mm-hmm. on the internal part gotcha so well, that makes okay sense. so that's a little bit on a woman and now we're gonna go to stuff about men okay so i love this part of the book <laughs> just because well i like anything that like i think about like scenarios um so 
this part was titled, I'm not being able, oh, I guess I wrote this, I'm not being able to get a boner the first time you have sex with a new partner. So this is like a thing that he runs into a lot. And he said it, the reason behind all this is that generally it's happening because you actually, the guy has like really strong feelings towards the woman. Mm -hmm. So his quote was to feel deeply about a new woman can be a little frightening and the guy's sexual self may react accordingly. I've known many men who can function perfectly well with a partner unless they've fallen in love with her. One of the paradoxes of human intimate life is that we tend to fall in love with relative strangers. We're less likely to be stirred to passion by people we've known since kindergarten and more likely to lust after someone we've just met. This can pose a a problem for our sexual self, which, like a small child, always yearns for their familiar. So... Then he says, no child wants to be handed over a total stranger. I'm convinced that when a new erotic relationship works well, it's because there are enough signs of familiarity that this new person doesn't really feel so new. I'm sure you felt that sense of instant closeness with a stranger from time to time, right? With sex, it's different, though. In bed, it's physically obvious that this person is new, that you don't really know them at all. So I thought that was interesting, and I think this is a pretty common scenario that, like, Mm. happens a lot. But he was saying specifically, also, too, it, like, makes sense there's a lot more pressure on someone if, like, they're really into them, when obviously, like, there's not pressure if you're not really into someone, because, like, who cares what your future holds, but if you're emotionally invested in the situation. So... There was a ton in the book about how specifically in this situation, um, you know, there can be issues with, I hate saying erections, so I just say boner. I like getting boners. (laughs) And, you know, so, but like this should go away. Like clearly if the girl's into him too, like it'll just like resolve on its own. Um, I think in this situation with some of the patients it played out, but like he gave them like Viagra and then they were like fine. Cause they got over like the psychological hump that was occurring. And huh. yeah. Yeah. So some random things I liked in the book where I read this one line where it was said, most people need acceptance more than they need sex turn up the acceptance and things will usually improve. So usually a lot of, I think these issues are, there's some insecurity that you're not being accepted as you are. So as much as each person can do to make the other person feel accepted. Um, Oh, and random factoid. If someone seriously has issues with premature ejaculation, SSRIs can be used off label for this, but I think like all physicians know that, but maybe like you're a person out there, you're not a physician and you have premature ejaculation, get yourself on an SSRI. Oh, low, is it like dose dependent though? It would have to be low dose. No, you could jack it all the way up. You're more likely to get that side effect and you could, you'll just feel good. Like, well, I mean, as long as you don't have a history of like bipolar or something and you're going to get manic from it. Well, what I'm thinking is, if you increase the dose high enough, will you, you know, suppress the orgasm completely? Oh, well, you know, so you could start low dose and just see what happens and then jack yeah. it up as necessary. Right? That's true. Oh, SSRs and are the best. They're they're the they're the best. They're like the God's favorite well, of all the medications. Unless you're perfectly sexually functioning at baseline and they give you a That's load true. of sexual dysfunction. And who among us is? <laughs> 
Just kidding. Okay. And then <laughs> another thing that I like, because I feel like a lot of people get weird ideas about this, is he was like, you definitely can still masturbate when you're in a relationship. Um, you know, especially a lot of this is looking at like people have like busy schedules. And so, you know, you might not have the opportunity to have sex, but should you stop masturbating? No. And then he specifically talked about lazy sex. So this is like if one person is like really tired or like other scenarios in which it would occur, I would imagine is like if a woman like just had a baby, you're probably not going to be having like real sex for a while. And mm-hmm. he said this is a way to like connect without like having like actual sex, but like one person could masturbate and the other one could just like kiss them or rub up on them or fucking whatever. All right. Um, or eat a <clears throat> or eat a sandwich. Or that. <laughs> I don't think no, I don't think that counts. That's just someone masturbating and hey, someone every, eating a sandwich. Some people are into that, you know. Okay, I'll make sure to eat a lot of sandwiches <laughs> around. George you. Costanza is, is yeah, one that's what I'm that saying. comes to mind. Yeah. okay so moving on the next thing that he pointed out that i liked was he said it's no accident that many couples have their best sex on vacation vacation Mm. sex is close to the sex we were designed for and he goes into like humans weren't built to work long hours it's unclear whether early ancestors even understood the idea of work at all and like he always talks about like your sexual self so anyways your sexual self has no idea what the word work means <laughs> and sex I've is essentially a leisure activity listen. does that mean that my whole self is my sexual self <laughs> yeah maybe yours are a mesh so like you know and this guy he's a shrink here in manhattan and um he says you know for most of the manhattan couples he sees one of them like they'll be raising kids so the idea of leisure is like non-existent in their lives um so you know if they're not barely having time for like talking to someone else like their partner then how are they really gonna have time to have sex with them right but anyways love this concept Uh, i think it it really makes sense because i I think there's there's like something for everybody there's you know, yeah. if this is your issue, try this. Maybe this is the problem. If, if you know, this is the way your lifestyle is, like if you're too busy, maybe, you know, like it, it's, it doesn't, you know, criminalize or, 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 you know, make anything sound wrong, but it's like, this is how you could work around this or that. And I, and I like that about it without making it sound like, you know, you have a problem. It's like, well, try this, you know, and, and I, I think that that's great. Yeah, I think a lot of the point he was trying to make or, like, in this whole book is, like, first, like, accepting yourself as who you are and then clearly if you care about someone, accepting them as they are and, like, um, stop having so many, like, rigid ideas of how things should play out and just sort of let what happens happens and things will be better that way. Absolutely. So then he went into, like, biological differences between men and women, um... And so he said that men are worried about their performance, whereas women worry about their appearance. And he was like, Mm. even in our day and age, even in 2020, this is the basis of things. So he said, women's preoccupation with their own physical bodies is so powerful, it must be biological. 
It's long been known that women easily get turned off by negative feelings about their bodies, but might a woman's positive feelings about her body be a big contributor to arousal? So there was a study and it showed that men are often confused by the question, would you want to have sex with yourself? But women understand this question and most are very quick to respond yes. So (laughs) I thought that was really cool because like if I was asked that question, I'd say yes, like immediately. And if I didn't, I need to go fix whatever it was, right? That was making me not say yes to myself. But I didn't until I saw it like written out. I didn't realize that this was the concept that like I I might understand, but like a man might not. Um, Can I ask a follow-up question? Yeah. Did they... Did they like kind of uh, make a conjunction study? Like, did the people, did the women that said yes that they would, did they also, you know, masturbate? No, I wish they'd gone that far. But he really connected to it. Um, he said, This is why it's really important for straight women to experience men initiating sex because they, uh, they associate that with like feeling desired. And so mm-hmm. if that's not happening, they think that the like guy's not into them and then things start to go awry. So um, like part of it with with like women and men in long term relationships too is because that's such like a biological desire in women to like feel desired and like sought after and stuff, is that often when people get like married or have been in a relationship for a certain amount of time the Mm -hmm. guy's like okay we're cool whatever so he doesn't like pursue the woman anymore and then she takes that to mean like he's not into me and then she starts to shut down and then a lot of issues happen um and one thing he points out too is that generally the female in a heterosexual relationship like really monitors sexual activity more so than the male like oh wow in in their mind will potentially be like counting how many times they've had sex uh monitoring like his behavior and how much they think it means he's into them and then you know so really paying a lot of attention to this stuff yeah and like putting a value on it Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm and so he said that like a lot of the problem is that information out there will tell women when they're in these situations to manipulate or like play games or things like that and then obviously that spirals issues further right um and makes things worse so as a sex therapist or sex psychiatrist or sex shrink or whatever we want to call him He's found that, like, it's better to educate men about this and just, like, let them know that, you know, his partner most likely has a need to feel pursued, yada, yada, yada. And then he can do the information what he wants to, um, but not really working on the woman changing anything since it's more of, like, there's a biological drive contributing to what's going on. Um, And, wait, this is a good good quote. (laughs) So, if he can or won't do this, then I have no pity for him. The reality is that a woman needs to feel desire. For most women, it's like oxygen. And he says, the most important part of, like, I guess a guy's job in a long-term relationship 
is for him to realize when the woman might be pulling away from him. And then, oh, he says, it's far more important for you to simmer her than for her to simmer you. (laughs) Fun times. Okay, so you know how you've been talking about, like, how, like, memory plays a lot into, like, like, sexual stuff and, like, arousal and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, obviously, what I was thinking about when you were saying that is clearly, like, the negative spin on that is, like, trauma. Yeah, I was thinking of that, too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that could be, like, an inhibitory, you know, force. Yes. So, one thing he points out is, like, the sexualization of a woman's body can be a form of trauma. And some women are, like, repeating this trauma when they sexualize their own bodies, which you now we're saying that you sort of have to sexualize your own body to be into sex mm-hmm. so clearly this can like it's be confusing. a fucked up yeah. cycle to say the least so that was just something that was pointed out and i was like that's definitely something i've seen play out yeah and then going back to woman what he said was there's figuring out for them how to actually enjoy sex so women have been objects of desire for as long as people have kept records but it's Going into what everything we've been saying, there's never been much said about a woman's own sexual pleasure. So, one thing he points out, and I can say this is definitely true for me. Women often tell me that sex in their teens and early 20s was mostly just for getting attention. And then usually, if it's for pleasure, it's not until after early 20s, if ever. And some people mm-hmm. might, unfortunately, never hit that. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that that's interesting. But I think that there's, like, other... It depends. I think it depends what you feel about, the, about your partner, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, so my thoughts are that when it's kind of like a bias. So when you're in your you're in your teens or early 20s, you're not necessarily looking for, you know, you may not be looking for a long-term partner. So you may kind of purposely, you know, subdue your feelings and say, you know, this is for fun and that's all it is. I'm young. But then when you're older, you kind of put a little bit more value into it and say, you know, is this something I could see myself, you know, you know, doing for the rest of my life is this someone that I can, can, can see myself, you know, as, as a potential mate. So I'm almost wondering if that kind of puts like a different uh, perspective on sex. I mean, I took, the way I took it was that I think that, you know, that there's no one who's like telling like a 15 year old girl, like sex should be for like, you to get pleasure from right like if anything it's more like oh like okay so let's not use 15 because that's a little young set let's say a 17 year old right so as no one's gonna tell a 17 year old girl like sex should be for your pleasure like it's usually at some point about making your boyfriend happy right is how sex first gets introduced for you so when it's introduced to you like that it's gonna take a while for you to potentially grow out that maybe there's another reason for this. B- 
beyond that. Because, like, at least, like, from everything that I was exposed to when I was young, that was the only message I received. Like, that that sex is to make the guy happy. So it took until I was in, like, my mid-20s to be like, "Mm, I don't think I'm going to go along with this. You know, to, like, so I think it's more like society and, like, how society impacts, you know, us Absolutely. And, 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 you know, if we're talking about girls, they're, <clears throat> you know, it, it's kind of like a culture. It's like a tribe. They're going to do what their girlfriends are doing. And, and, you know, all it takes is somebody to come along, even maybe like a, a, a you know, a singer or somebody to say, you know, no, let's take control and, and let's make this about our pleasure and, and, you know, our empowerment and I think that girls are in the teenage girls are in the uh, position where they'll kind of they're very powerful. They're you know one of the most powerful, um, you know, influences of society. So yeah, I, you know they could harness that for sure. Well, I also think that things have changed a lot since I was a teenager, even though it wasn't that long ago. But you know, I think there's still a lot of room to go. Yeah, absolutely. So, the next thing he talked about that I thought was really funny um, and arguable. So, he says that men never complain about how someone kisses, but women do all the time. When a man in my office talks to me about a new partner, it's a lot simpler. Either they turn him on or they don't. But for most women, this question could be exceedingly complex. Mm. Few men are aware how meticulously their female partners assess their behavior. Sometimes... So essentially he's saying like a woman can go from being like super turned on by someone to like totally turned off depending on one little thing. And then they might evaluate a guy's character the same way like, oh, he should be thoughtful, but not so thoughtful that he seems wimpy or like, you know, a bit of a dominant right. attitude can be sexy, but not so dominant that he's pushy or domineering. Right, and right, so right. Fine line. they're, yeah, they're like very picky. And so I thought this was funny because, you know, um, I think there are definitely exceptions to this. Mm-hmm. Jonah, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, if a, if someone was kissing in a way that was, like, awful. All right, like a very aggressive. Or, like, or like that hurt. <laughs> or that, like, I remember when I was much younger, when I was, like, 18, um, I was dating a girl briefly that, we would never like French kiss and she'd only just kiss on the lips. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't remember exactly how I thought about it, but like, I think part of me was like, thought she like lacked passion or that like, she didn't think of kissing as sexual. And I was like, and I remember saying like, why don't you use your tongue or why don't you open your mouth or anything like something like that. So I, I think, but like, yeah, like, the whole like locker room talk guys aren't like, Oh yeah, she's a great kisser. Like no one, no one (laughs) says stuff like that. Right. It's not the Um, like 1950s, like movies. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think, and I think back then it was probably just what was safe to say versus sex. Yeah. 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 Oh wow. Yeah. I think like on screen, like, like the, I love Lucy show was the first show where they could share a bed in, in a married couple's bedroom they like broke that boundary by having one bed in their bedroom instead of two. 
right. back then, like in like Greece and stuff like that. She's like, oh, I bet she's a great kisser and like all that. But like everyone knew what it meant, I think. But like oh, in terms of the Greece maybe pushed not, the envelope a little bit. Well, yeah. Well, you know what I'm saying? Like those kinds right, of shows. Right. But it was also movies. from the 70s meant to yeah. be about the 50s. But yeah, right, right. something that was based in the 50s. Yeah. Right. But like in terms of the other stuff, like me personally, like I've always been trying to be aware of how I think I'm coming off. Right. And I've always felt like the times where there's always like a, it's, it's a complex thing because you want to come off a certain way. But then there's also times where you like go out on a date and meet someone new and you kind of have that dynamic. But at the same time, you're not necessarily into them. So you, you may not even really care. Or right. you don't want, or you don't want them to like you, or or be into you, <laughs> or whatever. So it's like an it's it ebbs and flows. But I think, in my mind, you know, having spent times in my life where I was single for a fairly good amount of time and meeting lots of new people, I think it kind of just weaves in and out. And a lot of it has to do with like the background psychology of that situation to begin with, like. If you've been single for two years, your attitude towards a date is going to be a lot different than if you've been single for a month. Right. Like, yeah. You're, you might have a lot more around what that means and like what you're hoping for to accomplish or your comfort or what or like your, how seriously you take it or, or whatever. Um, yeah. And in my and in my mind, I think really what it's always come down to is like I acknowledge that like in the, all those situations that I've been in it's always going to be a little bit different in terms of like how much I'm thinking about what, how I'm coming off versus how much I'm just being myself versus whatever. But my question yeah. to you is, so the way the book stated, it was said women are very picky about like little things about a guy. So I don't care about how you care about how you're coming off. Right. I want to say, I think personally that you're what I know of you is that you would be an exception to what he's saying about like guys don't really care about little things about like a girl or her behavior or things like that. I think that you would care. What do you say? Yeah, but that's just like a personality type of either <laughs> of any gender where like you might be a very particular kind of person and I am. <laughs> okay, so we have an exception. That's what I wanted confirmed. <laughs> okay. Well, all I was trying to say is that like, you know, I guess where I ended up with all the rambling that I was going through is basically that like wherever I'm at in that moment that led me to that moment, I'm going to be a certain way. And then you kind of just hope that it all kind of works and that the dynamic and that people understand and give each other that credit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, sure. It's very complex. Like it, there it's, it's not like a yes or no. Like you need the, you know, you need to lead up to it. Yeah. 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 So moving on next section. Quote, most of us get turned on at night by the very things that we'll demonstrate against during the day. Well, I hate that. I'm a pretty consistent person. Yeah, so, but this is what is that true mean? of I think this is true of most people, but it's something that bothers me very much because I don't know. Um, so essentially what he goes on to say is that power is sexy. And many women tell me they get excited by the idea of surrendering uh, to a partner who has a lot of it. So sometimes the issue is that someone will be into someone on a lot of levels, but not like a sexual level, because perhaps the guy is really like 
tries hard to please her and she's like into that on a lot of levels but then on a sexual level it doesn't really work out and he said for guys who are like really lack the ability to be I guess dominating at all that Mm -hmm. one and this is a very psych thing that a lot of the reason he thinks this happens is that um so the guy when he's a kid he has a father who like he hates and the guy the father might be like you know domineering and abusive and a lot of these things to an extreme that's negative so this guy when he's a kid will vow like oh I'll never be like my dad and so this could result in him becoming as undomineering as possible so this he will grow up to be a guy who's too nice too deferential and can't express any quote raw male passion because he's afraid of being too much like his father and this is definitely a psych thing that's like legit so i thought it was cool seeing that played out i'm pretty sure you know we've all known people like this whether we're aware of it or not so what is that called, like, because uh, I know when there's the mother and the son, it's called, like, an Oedipal, Oedipal complex. What is it called when it's, like, a father and a son? Is there, like, a term for that? Um, no, because it's, it's uh, the terms are for father, daughter, and then mother, son. But, like, right. either way, there can still be theories, even if we don't have names for them. So I thought that was interesting explanation for why this happens sometimes um something to keep in the back of your head because a lot of people they might you might have a sense of this thing but you might not because the reality is people don't talk about sex as much as they should and part of the reason I wanted to go forward with releasing this episode on the podcast is because I think it's still considered too taboo. And, and oh, it's absolutely. really bad if like, especially if you're a psychiatrist, because sex plays such a huge role in people's lives. And if we can't think that it's something that can be talked about and in a, like a good positive way, then we're making things worse and we're just yeah. keeping society suppressed right so I just think it's good to keep these things in mind yeah so another thing that stood out to me in the book is he said you know the conventional script for heterosexual couples it's always been more concerned with a man's adequacy in bed than with how much he's really enjoying the experience so when I read that I felt bad for guys I go I like when I read this book I switch from feeling bad for myself and then feeling bad for the whole or like feeling bad for my own gender and then feeling bad for men so one of the things he points out is that like I don't even know how to say this easily but like penises have like a bad reputation like they're associated with like the patriarchy And with men's feelings of sexual entitlement. And then he said, there's no better way to lose an audience at a sex therapy meeting than to bring up the subject of men's erections. You go to these meetings for years and never know there was such a thing as a penis. So (laughs) then he goes into like, um, you know, why this, how this plays out and sort of like how erections are the most vulnerable part of man's sexual response for both medical and psychological reasons um 
Loss of hardness is often a psychological catastrophe for a man. No one knows exactly why. I think it's primarily because of the archaic way we associate erections with masculinity. So most men feel lost without this physical emblem of their manhood. So I thought it was interesting that first off he pointed out like how, you know, the penises have this bad reputation like academia or like the world because they're associated with patriarchy. And then how an erection ends up being so much so important for like a male and like they're devastated if they're having issues with it. So I actually want to go back to what you said about the performance versus pleasure. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, I don't even, this is like so sensitive, but, um, you know, the, the traditional culmination of sex is the male orgasm because that's a, a visual and physical, you know, you, you, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's ejaculation and then there's, you know, the end of sex. So, you know, Mm -hmm. a female doesn't have to, and even for reproduction doesn't have to orgasm necessarily. So I think that performance and pleasure kind of go hand in hand as kind of the default of what signifies the end of the sexual encounter. Yeah. No, I agree. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then I thought another thing he said when in the same section was he said, the main reason a man needs to get hard is so that he won't have to worry about getting hard. (laughs) Having an erection (laughs) is no guarantee that he'll enjoy himself, but if he doesn't have one, there's not much chance he'll remember the experience fondly. Yeah. So then he he goes into sort of saying that, you know, there's a biological basis to these things, but there's a lot of cultural impact um that he hopes will change and then he said i think it might be a while before men truly feel comfortable receiving erotic pleasure for its own sake and i think a long time before most men can think clearly about their own erotic pleasure without worrying about how well they're performing so those are just his hopes for the future And when you when you put the two together, it's almost like, what is the point? Like, who is actually enjoying this? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's it's a well. Yeah, if you put together all the horrible things we're talking about, it doesn't really sound like anyone's enjoying anything. Female is doing it for their like you know the male because they were told that that's why they have sex, but then the the male is trying to focus on performance. Like, it, it almost is like if everybody would just have a conversation about it and their goals and expectations and their what they want to get out of it, you could kind of, you know, have, have, have yeah. better sex. <laughs> Literally, well, like the people, book. <laughs> people want to make things out to be black, very black and white, and I don't think a lot of this is because, like... As a man or a male or whatever, um, yeah, like you're you, as you guys were saying, like it's sort of dependent on the man as to like when sex is over because physically, you're in unable to have intercourse at a certain point after you right. fin after you finish, and like there's things about like I think men feel like they're definitely feel like they're being judged for their performance and how much pleasure that they give their partner and then they there is what you guys are talking about in terms of like a man 
also being able to kind of like relax and enjoy himself. And I think that there's a lot, I I, I don't know, it might be a generational thing. Younger people might have a different attitude or different exposure to things or different messages that they've received than someone like me. But I think that there's like a, there's almost like guilt around that. And it feels almost like you're being selfish if you're worried about enjoying yourself. And yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. It's, it's a complicated thing because I think we're all, no matter your gender, we're all selfish in a certain way. But like when it comes to sex, a lot of men associate like pleasuring like their partner with their masculinity and like being good at sex is important to men. And right. so a lot of the, t- a lot of men that there, there's even like versions of this where like men are like super into women getting pleasure, like to the point where they don't even, that their pleasure is just women getting pleasure. They don't even need right. to like have an orgasm. Like they just want to, they feel like a, like a strong man or very masculine if they can pleasure a woman. And I can see how that could lead to resentment. Like, well, you know, after time. Well, too, you know, he points out that, like, if there's too much pressure, because a lot of the guys who are like that will put so much pressure on the other individual to, like, orgasm. Like, there there shouldn't be too much pressure on either person, essentially. exactly. Yeah. Because, and and every man, if they're being honest with themselves, has experienced these kinds of things. And if you're if you're with a partner who again, I'm not I don't know, I'm I'm women probably have their own version. I don't know. But like if you're with a partner who can't orgasm. There's a lot of reasons that could be true, but like a man, it's going to make a man feel insecure. That's just a fact for the most part. And then you're going to feel like anyone's going to resent the person that makes them feel bad about themselves on some level. So like if you're with someone who's having whatever their own issues are, whether it's sexual repression from an early age, whether it's anxiety, whether it's lack of knowledge of their own body, whether it's trauma, any trauma, whether it's a history of sexual abuse, whether it's anything, it could be many different things. But if a, if a woman makes a man feel like less than a man, he's going to resent that person who, and, and essentially like in my mind, like in our culture that happens anywhere, whether it's between a man and a woman in a sexual relationship or it's like two guys at a bar, like having words with each other and trying to make each other feel like, you know, like less than a man. And it yeah. makes people freak out and lose their temper and get in fights. It's, it's all the same thing. It's all the same kind of resentment of like not ever wanting to feel that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For and sure. leaving it up and- to the other person to be sensitive to that. It, it just doesn't work. You know, you're not thinking about the other person in those situations. Yeah. And it's conflicting because like women, you know, again, I can only really speak to my own experience, but like, you know, anyone who's a reasonable person wants their partner to feel good during sex. Right. Whether, you know, however, that can take different, you know, different scales or whatever. But I think a lot of men and I think like when I was younger and stuff like it, you kind of don't really listen to it when women say they want to do things that make you feel good because you're so wrapped up in the idea that it's your job to make them feel good. And if you don't, you're a failure. Right. So it's you kind of feel like that's you're being nice, but uh, like, at I don't what, at be what cost? Right. Yeah. Right. Like, 
where I think I can, I can speak for myself. Like there's definitely been many moments in my life where I was afraid of being selfish in those, in those situations. Sure. Yeah. I think the idea is just that for either gender or sex, I don't even know. I fucked both of us up a ton in this episode. I don't know which I'm supposed to be saying, but either way, whoever you are, whatever you are, there's so many pressures from the time that you're like a child that get ingrained in you and play out can play out in a negative way. And hopefully each individual has enough insight to recognize that these things aren't shouldn't be as important as they're portrayed to be. Right. So another thing like about since we're on the topic of like men and men's sexuality, um, going back to I think especially when like sort of why issues can arise for men sexually is he was speaking about and I think this is more about like a potential like a first sexual encounter but he was talking about sort of like how when a guy initially like meets a girl and he's super into her and he's like super turned on and then the time comes for them to have sex and the atmosphere changes so he was talking about how the guy might feel that now she wants something from him. And then then unconsciously many men feel they lack sufficient inner resources to satisfy a partner. Men aren't accustomed to being the providers of physical nourishment. It makes them nervous. A woman's need can seem enormous too much for him. He worries she'll be ravenous and want more than he has to give. Viewed this way, it's no surprise that many men lose sexual function. The moment sex appears like on the table, So, and then he said, given the depth of feelings that can be involved, it's remarkable that intercourse so often proceeds without a hitch. And then beyond this, so he's essentially saying men need to feel welcomed because women's, the woman's body is where sex happens. So essentially how this would play out later in a relationship, like with relationship issues is if a guy's with a woman and she's really, really critical of him, he may end up withdrawing sexually from her. Because he doesn't feel welcomed. And then he said, the author says, the truth is we are just like women. We need to feel appreciated. So I thought that made a lot of sense. Like, you know. Yeah, it like ties, it ties the two, uh, you know, genders together and kind of like a common, common ground. So anyways, there's a lot of other stuff in the book. Like essentially a lot of the book is about people who are like a bajillion years since their relationship and they're no longer like into each other or whatever and like what you can do when that problem arises. But I don't think I have many like 55-year-old listeners. <laughs> if you're in that category <laughs> just and that's your issue, please go buy the book. Um, but but also did- cheers to you. <laughs> <laughs> for making it this long you know like you could probably yeah and being so yeah. cool that you listen to my podcast but essentially <laughs> i i thought either way the book was like cool it validated a lot of things i thought about and then pointed out some biological or psychological reasons for things that i've thought about but maybe not on that level so i'm gonna end this episode with a quote from this guy steven snyder right What's the purpose of erotic love in a lasting relationship? To fill you up, to inspire you, and to nourish your faith. Everything else is secondary. And I thought that was really beautiful. And he did, like, a, a little connection to, like, how he compared, like, sex to, like, praying. 
I thought it was really okay. cool. Um, but he he the overall the book's really cool, pretty good and pretty interesting. And definitely, if you're a shrink, you should read it. And also, if you just like reading about relationship stuff. So that's it for today. Thank you for this consult on sex. <laughs> <laughs>